The last thing that the sutta, that was in the sutta that we already discussed, were the five senses, and that the mind is their home, or their home place, like a home pigeon. Everything that happens to the senses goes home to the mind. And then the next question is, there are these five faculties that are the ear, nose, tongue, body. These five faculties persist depending on what? And the answer is, these five faculties persist depending on lifespan. If one is dead, then I haven't got all these five faculties. Then the first question is, and what does lifespan um, Lifespan persists depending on what? And then the answer is lifespan persists depending on heat. And heat then persists depending on what? Well, heat persists depending on lifespan. So now, just now, this so the questioner says, we understood the Venerable Sai Putta to say lifespan persists depending on heat. And then we understand him to say heat persists depending on lifespan. How should the meaning of these statements be regarded? Otherwise, what, what, what is all this about? Eh? So he says, in that case, I shall give you a simile. For some wise men understand by means of a simile the meaning of a statement. And this now he says, just as when an oil lamp is burning, its radiance is seen depending on the flame, and its flame is seen depending on the radiance. So too, lifespan persists depending on heat, and heat persists depending on lifespan. So they are mutually dependent on each other. Well, there's hardly anything that one needs to say. The, uh, the question is, one that's actually obvious. I mean, as long as there's life, then we have these faculties. And as long as there's heat, well, there's life. And that's what he said, it's called. So then the next question is... Are life processes the same as an expression, as states of feeling? Or are life processes one and states of feeling another? Life processes are not states of feeling. Where life processes states of feeling, then someone entered upon cessation of perception and feeling, this emergence could not take place and it is because life processes are one and states of feeling <coughs> are another that when someone has entered upon the cessation of perception and feeling his emergence can take place the, um, the cessation of perception and feeling is sometimes called the ninth jhana, but um, its name in Pali is Niroda, and it is only available to a non-returner and an arahant 
And it says the question is um, geared in that direction because a person, or we'll hear that in a minute, who has no perception and no feeling does not even seem to be alive. And uh, so obviously, but he obviously is. Because otherwise he couldn't come out of it again. He can't emerge from it. He could not, um, could not be stopped. Just like a dead body can't be stopped from being dead. But a body that has ceased to perceive and feel, that can stop again. So the life process and the, this uh, feeling cannot be the same. So the answer is, when this body is bereft, of how many dhammas is it, of how many dhammas, is it then dropped and forsaken? Does it lie like senseless, like a log? When this body is bereft of three dhammas, that is to say, life, heat, and consciousness, it is then dropped and forsaken and lies like a senseless log. So, what actually what they're talking about is what's the difference between being dead and Niroda? Because um, you might have read that somewhere in a book. Uh, it is something that has been um, highly um, considered a high attainment in the yogic um, path that someone could uh, sit and it says for up to seven days uh, like it uh, looks like a dead person but the heat is still there and uh, so because of that heat the body is still warm uh, one knows that that person is alive and uh, the consciousness is also still there but the consciousness is not conscious of perceiving anything is not conscious of feeling it just still exists so the question centers around the difference between the, the Niroda state, it's called cessation, Niroda means cessation, and the, the death, the actual death. So how many phenomena are we losing when we are senseless like a log? That is to say life, heat and consciousness and then the body is dropped and forsaken. But before that it isn't because it's a very high state of attainment. One who is dead, who has completed his time, and a person who has entered upon the cessation of perception and feeling, what's the difference between them? The one who has completed his time, his bodily processes have ceased and are tranquil. His verbal processes have ceased and are tranquil. His mental processes have ceased and are tranquil. His lifespan is exhausted. His heat has subsided. His faculties are quite broken up. One who has entered cessation of perception and feeling, bodily processes have ceased, are tranquil, verbal processes have ceased, are tranquil, mental processes have ceased and are tranquil, lifespan is unexhausted, heat has not subsided, and faculties are intact. One who is dead, who has completed his time, and as one who has entered upon the cessation of perception and feeling, the difference between them is this. So that's just the, the explanation that when, when there is this cessation of feeling and perception, 
the heat is there and actually all the, the um, uh, faculties, the sense faculties, are intact even though they're not being used. They're all intact, but in a dead person, of course, they are no longer intact. And um, although there's complete tranquility in, um, in the mind and in the body, because there's nothing happening at all, it still life is there. It's not a terribly great interest because it's only for non-returners and, and arahants, so um, maybe not quite uh, applicable at this point in time. No? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it's part of the sutta, so it's right there. Now, the next thing is deliverance of mind. How many conditions are there for attainment of the deliverance of mind that is neither painful nor pleasant and neutral? There are four conditions for this. With the abandoning of pleasure and pain and with the previous disappearance of joy and grief, a person enters upon and abides in the fourth jhana, which has neither pain nor pleasure, has purity of mindfulness due to equanimity, these are the four conditions for the attainment of the deliverance of mind that is neither painful nor pleasant. It's a very... Um, it's, I don't think it's conflated correctly. Because the deliverance of mind means the attainment of the past moment. And the attainment of the past moment and the fourth jhana is certainly not the same thing. As anybody who's done it will know. So I'm con convinced it's wrongly translated. I don't know why this is already the second thing that's wrong in this sutta. With the abandoning of pleasure and pain, with the previous disappearance of joy, well, in the fourth jhana none of these things apply. In the fourth jhana, there's neither joy nor pleasure, and there's also no painful feelings in the body, or grief, there's nothing like that. One abides, enters the planet, abides in the fourth meditation, what is the fourth jhana, which well, it's impossible that that can be right, because exactly the same question comes again, and it's a totally different thing, how many conditions are there for attainment of the deliverance of mind that is signless? There are two conditions for this, non-attention to all signs and attention to the signless element. These are the two conditions for attainment of deliverance of mind that is signless. And that makes much more sense. The signless uh, deliverance of mind is... The word deliverance of mind under all circumstances means that this is a past moment. When the mind is delivered, that means it, it, it has attained a state of freedom. And the timeless del deliverance of mind is the, is the um, result of having used impermanence as one's vehicle to gain absolute insight. Anicca, impermanence, has, has a signless deliverance of mind as a result, or the doorway that one goes through is signless. Now that means, there are two conditions are given here, 
two things. It means that, for instance, in the seventh jhana, one recognizes the fact that there is nothing that exists that has any um, solidity or any any aspect of separation. So there's no there's non-attention to all signs, which means there just aren't any signs that one looks at. Signs is everything that exists. And that's one aspect of it. And the other one is the attention to that which has no signs in it. In other words, one doesn't pay attention in, in the seventh dana, for instance, to anything that, um, doesn't pay attention to anything that may still come up, because the mind can still look at things, but one looks at the fact, one directs the mind to look at the fact that there is nothing. And then, Having done that, the past moment deliverance of mind is possible. So that is the the uh, the condition for the deliverance of mind. It isn't the seventh jhana in itself that is the deliverance of mind. None of the jhanas are deliverance of mind. All of the jhanas are worldly aspects. All of the jhanas are nothing but the means to an end. And the end is seeing things as they really are and having complete disenchantment, dispassion and complete letting go. So, they, but they give us an indication of what there really is. And that indication, particularly in the seventh jhana, can be seen in others in fear 5 and 6 too, but the seventh is particularly uh, significant for that. Uh, in most of these jhanas, one has that um, uh, this opportunity to see that there is a completely signless element, an element in the seventh jhana which has absolutely nothing in it. There's nothing that one can say has any significance that has anything to it. And then from that on, one can actually let go and go to the past moment from there it's a very uh, possible situation now if I use that as an as a, um, indication of what is meant in the, the previous one previous paragraph then the possibility in the fourth jhana is also given because in the fourth jhana there's the deliverance of mind is called neither painful nor pleasant, so that is um, a neutral feeling. Now, that is also possible, but it doesn't happen in the fourth jhana, but the fourth jhana can give us, can give us a, a springboard for that to happen. Now, our whole dilemma in the human situation is that we react to our feeling. It feels pleasant, so we want to keep it. It feels unpleasant, so we want to get rid of it. And when it feels neutral, we don't even know about it, because we just don't have enough mindfulness. So this is one of, this is the point in dependent origination where the whole thing keeps going every time we react to something. Our rebirth is 
assurance. It's like a passport to rebirth. It's not a passport to heaven, it's a passport to rebirth. Every time we react to something. And in a more, maybe more um, down-to-earth manner, every time we react to one of our feelings, we have already, again, dukkha. Because either we want to keep something which is unkeepable, or we want to get rid of something which we can't get rid of quick enough and will come back again, a painful feeling. And the pleasant ones we can't keep. So we are again in the um, return situation of having dukkha again. Now here, obviously that is no way to have deliverance of mind or relief or relief or anything. It's just the old story over and over again. So therefore it is said that the deliverance of mind is possible that is neither painful nor pleasant. Well, the, the, the wording is of course, um, well, not extremely indicative of what's going on. The deliverance of mind is, is possible when we recognize that our non-reaction makes it possible for us to be without dukkha. And when we realize to be that it's possible to be without dukkha, then we have what is called the doorway through which we can step into deliverance of mind, which is the wishless element. When we, when we realize that when there is no need anymore to react, that it's just this feeling and that our equanimity is assured, the purity of mindfulness due to equanimity, which is an aspect of the fourth jhana, then we can then translate that into that which we would like to attain, we can go through that doorway. So if dukkha is the one that interests us most, and there is no reason why it shouldn't, because most people have plenty of it, cons consistently, then we will recognize through our rec uh, reaction to feelings that we're constantly reinforcing our dukkha. We're constantly making new dukkha. In fact, we, we are, we're so used to having it that most people don't even know what it's like to be without it. They have never experienced it. Now, when one gets into the jhanas, so particularly in the fourth one, one has an experience what it's like to be without dukkha. So, through that experience, which is mentioned here as the fourth meditation, one can then infer that it's possible, because equanimity makes it possible not to react to, these, um, to any of the feelings, and then can go through that doorway, the doorway of wishlessness. That must, that must necessarily be the meaning of this paragraph, but uh, I must admit that I don't think it's coming out in the way it's worded, but there can't be anything else that is meant by this. Is this clear? Are there any questions? Quite clear? So, we'll do it afterwards, huh? Now, how many conditions are there for persistence of the deliverance of mind that is timeless? There are three conditions for this. 
non-attention to all finds, attention to findless elements, and the prior determination of the length of the persistence. These are the three conditions for persistence of the deliverance of mind that is findless. Well, the first two we have already had, that the non-attention to all finds, in other words, when that we don't look at things this is a seventh shana particularly as an example. We don't look at the things that we could possibly find, but we look at the fact that there isn't anything. And then the prior determi determination of the length of this persistence. Well, if it's a past moment, it's only as one mind moment anyway. But if it's an experience in the seventh jhana, then we can, of course, make a determination how long we want to stay there. How many conditions are there for emergence from the deliverance of mind that is timeless? Two conditions. Attention to all signs and non-attention to the signless element. These are the two conditions for emergence from the deliverance of mind that is timeless. So, coming out of this, what is being said is that we now can pay attention to that which we can find again, the signs, well, like our body or our, um, um, our feelings, anything like that, and no longer pay attention to the signless element coming out of the seventh jhana. The, uh, the word deliverance of mind is absolutely used for that particular thing, namely to have the past moment. I'll just have a look and see if there's anything used here. But these two jhanas, fourth and seventh, would be particularly useful in order to uh, experience that. The deliverance of mind that is measureless, and that which is nothingness, and that which is voidness, and that which is signless, are these different in meaning and different in the letter, or are they one in meaning and only the letter is different? In other words, as measureless, nothingness, and voidness, and signless all mean the same thing, and are just that the words are different, or is it uh, something different? The difference of mind that is measureless, that which is nothingness, that which is voidness, that which is signless, there is a way in which these are different in meaning and different in the words, and there is a way in which they are one in meaning and only the words are different. What is the way in which they are different in meaning and different in words? Here a person abides with a mind endued with loving-kindness extending over one quarter, second, third, fourth, above, below, around, everywhere, and to all as to himself. He abides with an abundant, exalted, measureless mind of loving-kindness without hostility or affliction extending over the all-embracing world. He abides with a mind endued with compassion, with gladness, with equanimity, without hostility or affliction, extending over the all-embracing world. This is called the deliverance of mind that is measureless. The, um, again, this is another way of using, of being able to get to a past moment, and it wasn't un it's not uncommon, and has been mentioned in the suttas, that Loving-kindness made one's vehicle, loving-kindness and compassion, joy with others, the word gladness means joy with others, 
and make the limiting the four Brahma Viharas, the four divine abidings, the four supreme emotions, to make one's vehicle can purify the mind to the extent where it is, used, it is said to be measureless. That means that there is no um, no, not only not no separation between beings, but it goes into infinity and the all-embracing world. It goes everywhere. This uh, love, it's the quality of the heart. It's no longer um, a reaction to someone or something. As long as love and compassion are reactions, they are uh, pretty um, minute. But when they become a quality of the heart, then, of course, they can become measureless. There's no um, limit to them. They're limitless. And when they become that, it's a hard quality, the mind that becomes measureless can have deliverance of mind because through that. And what is the deliverance of mind that is nothingness? Here with the complete surmounting of the base consisting of infinity of consciousness Aware that there is nothing, a person enters upon and abides in the base consisting of nothingness. This is called deliverance of mind that is nothingness, as non-owning. What is that supposed to be? Non-owning? Just a moment, let's see what non-owning means. That is, uh, uh, um, the non-owning is explained as not owning lust and hate, greed and hate and delusion. And when the chains are exhausted, abandoned, then there is this non-owning. Anyway, the, um, where was I? Yeah. The mind of that is nothingness. Well, as I said before, the seventh jhana is a nothingness jhana. The, um, <clears throat> and it comes after the infinity of consciousness and having experienced that having the deliverance of mind that is nothingness that experience then can lead to the um, complete uh, abandoning of the delusion of that one day is a person as a new being listening to Dhamma He can't, well, he, let him, let him. He wants to hear the Dhamma. It's quite all right. If he's that persistent, one shouldn't take him away again. The uh, living that is nothing, uh, nothing is as non only. The experience of the seven challenges, this is what this whole, whole Sutta is about, and because of that, it's very interesting, actually. I mean, the Sutta is about all sorts of things. But this particular aspect right now that I'm um, reading, this is interesting because it shows quite clearly what the jhanas are supposed to do for one. The jhanas are never a, um, uh, um, a means in themselves, uh, well, no, not a means, an, an attainment in themselves. They're always only a means. So this is the base of nothingness, which is really um, possibly the 
most significant one as far as inside is concerned. Five, six, seven are the inside jhanas, the personal jhanas. And seven is <coughs> probably the most significant for inside. If that has been es established and uh, perceived in that seventh jhana that there is nothing, then the greed, hate, and delusion that we carry around with us, greed and hate being the results of the delusion, uh, can very possibly come to an end. The delusion is that which comes to an end first. Greed and hate don't come to an end first. It has to be the delusion. The delusion of the separate entity, which is somebody. The delusion of this me and mine, the one that is different, separate, and has a sort of solid core. The solid core which, which um, has been established through one's identification with everything that one could possibly find, male or female, young or old, beautiful or ugly, rich and poor, stupid and intelligent, father or mother, son or daughter, nephew or niece, um, a lawyer or doctor, uh, Anything one can find, that we identify with, and that's me then. And we make up this picture of ourselves, and then we try actually to be like that picture. Now, if somebody thinks of themselves as beautiful, they very often are. If somebody thinks of themselves as ugly, they look terrible. That's guaranteed. That's absolutely guaranteed. So, we make ourselves up to be exactly as we picture. The whole thing is fantasy, absolute and total fantasy. But we make it all up and then we have a nice little package, a package deal. And if we could get something else into the package, we like it because the package gets bigger. And the bigger the package, the more there must be me there. If I've got a really big package, it's okay then, isn't it? That's why people like to amass uh, things. They are car owners not just one car, no, two cars, or three. And they are house owners, not one house, two houses. And then they become boat owners. And then they are caravan owners. And then they have, so that makes the package a little bigger. It uh, becomes bigger and bigger. And then you lose something, like the, the husband gets lost. And then all of a sudden there's a great tragedy, because the, the ego has all of a sudden lost one of its package deals. It's no longer the identification, no longer a wife. So one makes up a new thing. Now it's called divorce, divorce Now it's a new thing. <laughs> <laughs> a new identification. So one has this, um, this is our delusion. Huh? That's uh, how people live in this delusion. Now in that seventh jhana, in the base of nothingness, Obviously, there's nobody. I mean, there's no father, no mother, no son, no daughter, no husband, no wife, nothing. There isn't a business, there isn't a lawyer, there isn't a doctor, there's nothing. And there isn't any witches, there are no caravans and cars, and nothing, no houses, nobody there. That's why it's also signless. There's nothing there. It just isn't. It's nothing. So, having seen that, it's quite possible to have the deliverance of mind, because eventually one sees, well, that's the way it is. 
Now, of course, there are the possibilities of thinking, oh, well, no, it isn't that way. There are so many cars and caravans and, and, and houses and people and wives and husbands. I must be owning all that, too. So then one goes back and says, oh, I've seen it, but it's, 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 that's fantasy. I believe in the first fantasy more. I believe in the identification fantasy. That's the one I really like, because everybody else believes in it, too. You see, most people don't don't have a second stana at their disposal. Most people have the package deal at their disposal. So it seems to be far more, um, well, it seems to have more validity because there's so much more people believing in the package deal. And also, there's a fear, there's an enormous fear to lose that which one has actually based one's life on. So it is no guarantee that having the seventh jhana that one's going to have deliverance of mind. But one thing is guaranteed, while having a moment of the seventh jhana, there's a moment of deliverance of mind. That is, that is guaranteed. And what's the deliverance of mind that is voidness? Your bhikkhu gone to the forest that is the root of a tree or to an empty heart considers that this is void of self or of what belongs to self. This is called deliverance of mind that is voidness. There's something missing there. See, this is an intellectual pursuit. So he goes to the to the forest, to the root of the tree, and to an empty heart. That means he's med meditating. I mean, that's, we have this instruction over and over again that one should go to the forest, to the root of a tree, or to an empty hut. And then the whole bit is missing that he's gone to the med has done is meditating. So he's not considering actually. I mean, why should he go to the root of a tree or to an empty hut to consider something? And he can stay right where he is to consider something. So he's meditating. And then he has this experience, void of self or what belongs to self. And that's called the deliverance of mind that is voidness. Actually, what it amounts to is exactly the same thing. In jhanas 5, 6, and 7, that the obvious conclusion of anyone who meditates must be, well, this is void of self, there's nobody there. And this is, this is one of the worst printed uh, suttas I've come across. It's obviously left out that, <coughs> that this is one of the, either the fifth or the sixth one, it's, uh, it doesn't matter which one. Uh, the, uh, that one, when one experiences the infinity of space or the infinity of consciousness, and I would guess at the infinity of consciousness, that the, when one comes out of that, that the immediate reaction has to be, this is void of self, or what belongs to self. It's impossible to have infinity of consciousness and still have a self-consciousness. No way one can have the two. One can either have one or the other. It's either consciousness, that is uh, infinite, or is consciousness which is self-conscious. So in infinite consciousness, there's no way that one can think of self. So this may then uh, uh, direct the mind towards that understanding. It's often said by the Buddha that going through the jhanas must eventually bring that kind of insight. But without the direction, I would doubt that. If there are no directions, I don't know that that it actually would do that. I don't know, but um, 
the Buddha certainly was there to give direction, so it certainly happened. So I would say that this is referring to the, the uh, sixth jhana, the uh, infinity of consciousness, which says, yes, well, there's no, there's, this is void of, of self. What is deliverance of mind that is signless? We had that already, didn't we? Here, with non-attention to all signs, a person enters upon the bias in the signless concentration of mind. This is called the deliverance of mind that is signless. Thus is the way. Thus is the way in which these dhammas are different in meaning and different in letter. Non-attention to all signs, which I've explained already as the seventh jhana, and one enters upon the bias in the signless concentration of mind. Now, the, now in here he, the explanation has been of the difference, how it's all different. That the measurelessness mind, measurelessness, measureless, not sorry, measureless mind has the um, non unlimited loving kindness, and the nothingness mind that goes to nothingness as the seventh, um, seventh jhana, and the voidness has the sixth jhana. And the signless one, well, I would say also seventh jhana. And what is the way in which they are one in meaning and only the words are different? Lust is a making of measurement or making of limitations. Hate is a making of limitations. Delusion is a making of limitations. In a person whose taints are exhausted and these are abandoned, made like a palm stump, done away with, so that they are no more liable and future to arise. Of the kinds of deliverance of mind that are measureless, the unassailable deliverance of mind is a pronounced the best. Now that unassailable deliverance of mind is void of lust, void of hate, and void of delusion. Unassailable, that's a new word, unassailable. The uh, palm stump is an always recurring uh, simile for something that does not grow again. Because when the palm tree is cut down and there's only a stump left, it can't grow again. It's not like our um, trees in the forest that uh, can shoot again. A palm stump is finished. And uh, it also, palms don't have a hardwood, they don't have a middle section, so there's nothing that can go again. No more liable to future arising. So the um, love, greed and hate and delusion are limitations. They limit us to a very contracted mind because we are thinking of ourselves as this single person, single entity, wanting this and that, not getting this and that, getting what we don't want, and all the rest of it. Someone who has to have a, a certain environment that will keep them somehow safe. And it is such a contraction in mind, such a limitation, to think of oneself in that way, that Greed and hate are the obvious re, uh, results of that. There's no other way we could operate because that person that thinks like that and 
practically the whole world thinks like that, they have to have the greed for that which they think will make them more secure and the hate for that which makes them feel insecure. So there's no, I mean, there's no choices. That's the way it is. So they are, they are called here the limitations or they make, well, the making of the measurements doesn't sound very good, does it? I mean, it's limit, limiting ourselves to this one, um, one man or one woman show that we put on and that is supposed to be applauded by everybody. Well, most people don't applaud our show, but we keep on trying. <laughs> We're certainly good at keeping on trying. So that's, uh, that is, um, that's the way they are one in meaning and only the words are different. So the chains have to be exhausted and abandoned. And of all the kinds of deliverance of mind that are measureless, the unassailable deliverance of mind pronounced the best. So obviously all these others are called measureless, but the unassailable is the one where the chains are exhausted. Well, I would, ass would have assumed tell you the truth that deliverance of mind always means the taint to be exhausted however it could possibly mean it's not very uh, exactly pronounced yet that's what it means that there are four stages of um, holiness or sainthood or four stages of attainment if you like and the taints are only completely exhausted at the fourth one at the arahant so one does have those jhanas and one does have deliverance of mind which is timeless or so forth but one can have it at the stream entry at the once returner at the non-returner and the taints are not exhausted at any of those three stages they get less and they're only exhausted it's unassailable the deliverance of mind in arahanship so the first time there are ten fetters which keep us bound. And the first time with stream entry, we lose the first three. And the f one of them does not seem to be one which concerns us, but it does. It is the, the loss of belief in rites and rituals. Now, we always think in that way about religious rites and rituals, but we have lots of rites and rituals which have nothing to do with religion and we are bound by habit to ex do exactly the same thing every day at the same time. And those are our rites and rituals. And we think that somebody who doesn't do that is obviously doesn't know how to live properly. So, um, and it depends also what country we're in and what culture we come from. And if we go to a different culture, then everybody does everything different. And then we look at them and say, now, how can they do things like that? That's not the way one does it. One doesn't run around in a grass skirt. One wears pants. And uh, uh, one, one doesn't uh, have uh, every shop closed on full moon. What nonsense is that? You shop, close your shops at Christmas. But nobody cares about Christmas when you go to a Buddhist country. You shop, close your shops at full moon time and such things. So we do have lots and lots of things that we believe in. But when the stream entry happens, these rites and rituals are seen to be um, nothing but um, a way of uh, keeping a society together. You know, the societies, several societies are like clubs, 
and you have to have the same, you know, belong to the same club, so you feel a little more secure when you belong to the same club. Everybody speaks the same language, and everybody, uh, you know, has the same ways of doing things, and so it's a little more, feels a little more safe. And then the other thing that gets eliminated is skeptical doubt or uncertainty. You see, people who have, haven't had stream entry, they're still uncertain whether they're doing the right thing. Maybe meditation is a bit difficult, or maybe it's a bit easy, or maybe meditation is very nice, but uh, there must be more to it. Well, there is, but they haven't had it. So they're quite uncertain what this is all about. They haven't had deliverance of mind. But when you do, then you know, that's it. That's absolutely it. There's nothing else to be done. This is the thing. So that goes away, the uncertainty. And the most important thing that goes away is wrong view of self. Now that means that at the moment, no. Then the next moment, after the past moment, is a fruit moment. And one knows that that fruit moment, that utter relief of having had a moment when there wasn't any burden. Everything was as light as a feather. And one recognizes that that happened because of the fact that, that at that moment nobody was there. There's absolutely nobody home. And the whole thing is as light as a feather. There's nothing to carry around on one's back. Sometimes people say it feels like getting rid of a hundred pound backpack if you put on a physical base. You know, and, and that is the wrong view of self is the burden that we carry around makes us do all the stupid things that people do, including war. Uh, but the stream enter, only having done it once, no longer believes in that solid self, but cannot feel it all the time. Has to resurrect the fruit moment in order to have a, um, a faint uh, re- return of that feeling, but that deliverance of mind is still assailable, it's not unassailable, because we the Neda are not touched at stream entry. See, Nibbana has been experienced once, there's a completely different person actually, because one changes from a Puchajana, a worldling, to an Aryan, to a noble one. It's a, it's a change of lineage, it's called. And changes one's lineage. One now becomes a noble one in the lineage of the Buddha and his disciples. But greed and hate hasn't been touched. However, greed and hate isn't quite as rampant in that person anymore because that wrong view of self is eliminated and the right view of self is there so that greed and hate are not such an so strong. It's, it's not as strong but they are not eliminated by any means, nor are they even um, lessened according to the uh, classification. The next thing is a once-returner, and greed and hate are still not eliminated. They're lessened. They're lessened to irritation. The hate is irritation. And the greed would be strong preference. it would not be um, being caught in the greed to the point of addiction, 
which happens to people, ordinary people, but it would still be a certain wantingness there. So that's the second uh, time having seen Nibbana. And the third one, the non-returner, is only that the one that eliminates greed and hate. And only for the non-returner, the sexual desire is eliminated, because that's also greed. <coughs> But he still has five factors, there are ten altogether. He still has the, the um, <coughs> well, one of them is called ignorance, which is still ignoring the complete Nibbana. One is called conceit, which is conceiving, still conceiving of self. For the non-returner, it said that the self is still adhering to him like the scent is adhering to a flower. So the, the scent is very subtle, but it sticks to the flower. So there's ignorance, there's conceit, and there's still restlessness, because that person still hasn't found everything that he wants, or that makes complete peace. And then there's a desire for rebirth in one of the higher realms, either the form realms or the non the formless realms or the subtle form non formless realms. And although one may think that one doesn't have that desire at all, not even having had any past moment, one doesn't want to be reborn up there somewhere. Um, there is still in the mind of anyone who's retained any self illusion, the feeling and the uh, underlying uh, strength of the conviction that this self here is something special. So it can't just be disappearing because this self is there, so how can it disappear? So all right, this world may not be so wonderful, one has finally seen that it's full of dukkha, so there must be some other place where this self can reappear. And with this deluded idea, there are dozens of books of, uh, on Buddhism propounding that deluded idea, because the Buddha never said anything like it. It's a pecker. And uh, there are dozens of books that are trying to say, that, oh, well, he didn't say that there wasn't any self. He just said that there one shouldn't be so attached to it. Or he didn't say there wasn't any self. One just shouldn't um, uh, think that that's the, the most important thing. All sorts of ways of trying to get out of the fact that there isn't a self. Although it's much nicer and much easier to get out of it completely. I'm not trying to wiggle, wiggle around and see where one can find a little bit of it somewhere. And that is this desire for rebirth in the higher realms. Okay, so I won't have a self that looks like this because I'm not so attached to this body and what I look like, so I'll have a self that has no form, that doesn't have any kind of body, or maybe I can have a self that has a very subtle form, looks like an angel or something like that. And this is the, the fetters, the five fetters, which are only eliminated at Arahantship. And that's why the most difficult thing is to get from non-returner to Arahant. The first two are sort of the kindergarten of enlightenment, the same entry and the one's returner, 
non-return is a little more difficult because one has to get rid of greed and hate, but the last one is the most difficult. There is this little bit of holding on, I'm going to find the self even if it's in the highest realms where nobody knows me, nobody knows my name, but I'll still be around. And that is the most difficult one to get rid of. And that's why the unassailable deliverance of mind is pronounced the best because that has gotten rid of all ten filters. The unassailable deliverance of mind is void of greed, hate and delusion. Greed is an owning, hate is an owning, delusion is an owning. In a person whose teens are exhausted, these are abandoned, made like a palm stump, done away with so that they are no more liable to future arising. Of all the kinds of deliverance of mind that are nothingness, the unassailable deliverance of mind is pronounced the best. The unassailable is void of greed, hate and delusion. This is just a repetition of what was said on before. Greed is a making of signs and so is hate and delusion. In one whose pains are exhausted, these are abandoned, made like a palm stump, done away with so that they are no more liable to future arising. Of all the kinds of deliverance of mind that are signless, the unassailable deliverance of mind is pronounced the best. Now that unassailable deliverance of mind is void of lust, and lust and greed is the same thing, void of hate and void of delusion. So, in one time he's talking about the, the deliverance of mind of nothingness, one time it's the deliverance of mind <coughs> which is signless, and the first one was the deliverance of mind which was measureless. Um, that's all of them, is it? Measureless, nothingness, signless, and that happened to the voidness one. I haven't got it. That is the way in which these dhammas are one in meaning, but the words are different. That is what the Venerable Sariputta said. And the Venerable Mahaputita was satisfied. He delighted in the Venerable Sariputta's words. What one would assume this have to have been was a discussion between the two. But then when it has been uh, transmitted uh, by word of mouth over about uh, 200 years and then finally written down, then it comes to be in such a more or less stultified version so that one really has to find out what they are talking about. But they are obviously talking about um, Nibbana all the time and how to do it and how to get there. And one is questioning, one is answering. And the um, and measureless mind, which is on, uh, concerned with loving kindness, nothingness, seventh jhana, Voidness, that we, we, we thought of, of, of that might be the sixth jhana, which is men mentioned there, and signless again, seventh jhana. Signless, the one that goes through impermanence, measureless to loving kindness, and voidness, one could say that The nothingness one, I would say, would be in in um, conjunction with the neither painful nor pleasant, 
which is the wishless one, the wishless one which goes via dukkha, and the voidless one, of course, which, which goes via nata. So these are the three possibilities of attaining liberation, is anicca, dukkha, nata, impermanence, dukkha, and non-self. And impermanence has the signless aspect. When one has looked at impermanence long enough, one sees that there is nothing that sticks together. Nothing. Everything falls apart constantly, including ourselves. And when one has looked at dukkha long enough, one knows what has it because one wants things, one wants something other than what it is. And one, when, when one looks at non-self or self long enough, maybe better to say look at self long enough, one recognizes eventually that that's just a fantasy, that there's nobody there. So these, one is the signless, one is the wishless, and one is the void, the deliverance. And the jhanas are certainly the vehicles, but that's all they are, the vehicles. But they do make it much, much easier than without them. This is uh, the end of this uh, sutta, which suits me fine, because tomorrow evening I want to tell something different. So, questions on how to get enlightened, very important. Yes. Um, freedom, liberation, um, to come back as a human being most likely yeah most um, likely could come back in one of the other worlds possibly but most likely as a human yeah Mm. non-returner doesn't come back here it's got to finish up in the higher world takes longer but Oh, yes, well, because the, the whole thing in the time element system there sticks around a long time. But, you know, it depends what momentum that mind has toward, for liberation. Who knows all these strange things that go on in the universe? Um, one more than two. Um, this notion of a different world. when you compare the jhanas with what you usually feel like. It's very simple. Just compare the state of any jhana with, uh, well, maybe uh, barring the first. The first is not a very good comparison. But all the others, especially the higher ones, compare them to what, what happens when you sit at your computer. And you know that there are different levels of consciousness. And then can you can compare jhana stages when you get when you hate somebody. 
And then when you, when you really, really hate somebody, you just can't stand it any longer. Or you get passionately in, enamored with somebody and you really have to have that person. Just compare those states of mind. And then you know levels of consciousness. Mindfulness, uh, you know, of, uh, of mental-emotional states. Yeah, it's knowledge. I mean that there's some beings floating around without bodies. Well, you know, whether that's a knowledge or whether that's an assumption, it can be an inference. I mean, our physical eyes certainly don't show us the whole universe. We can't even look around the next corner. So, I mean, what can we see in the universe? You go and yell at your secretary and see what she does. That's no, no, there's no theory in karma. All you have to do is yell at somebody and, and abuse them and see what happens. Whether they yell and abuse back. Or you give somebody a present and smile at them sweetly and say, I love you and see what the result of that is. I see what the result is in, um, in this morning. That's all you need to know. You've got a rebirth every morning. That's all that's necessary. That's all that's necessary. In fact, you've got a rebirth every second. But that's, you know, asking a bit much. So the rebirth every morning is plenty. It's the same thing. When you die, you go to sleep and then you come back again. Body looks different. Well, our body has looked different so many times in this life. If you have a photo album at home, or maybe your parents have a photo album of you, when, you know, from the time you got born till now, well, have a look. That's all you. Every one of them, at least you say that's me. I'm sure your parents are going to confirm it, that that's you. Look, look, uh, lying on this uh, bearskin rug or something. That's you. You couldn't possibly tell that that's you, but it says so underneath, what's your name underneath? So you've had any every morning you've had a rebirth. Every time you looked entirely different. So then you die and you look different again and you've got another rebirth. So instead of having now let's say you were eighty and you die and then you come back and you're small. So first in this life you were small and then got bigger and bigger and bigger and then you're eighty and die. So what's the difference? It's all the same thing. You can try karma and its results out any time you wish. And you don't even have to say anything, you just need to think it. Think something horrible, you feel horrible. That's karma and it's resulting. In fact, people think such horrible thoughts that they make themselves so unhappy that they don't even know how to get out of it anymore. And that's karma and it's resulting. To rebirth, you can, every morning, you can have an experience of it. And you bring with you what happened the night, the day before. And of course you bring with you also what happened the week before and the years before, but primarily the day before. Certainly. Certainly. 
very useful. All of these things are useful meditation subjects because these are all geared for insight. But as you can see from this particular sutra, um, that the jhanas are vehicles for insight. They have to be, otherwise they're useless. And they can't be useless. It's impossible to have different states of consciousness that are useless. It's not possible. So they, they certainly become valuable, but one has to go on with them for a little while. I mean, they're just, well, yes, yeah, sometimes even not a long time. But certainly karma is a useful meditation subject. Very useful. And you can very often, one can see in one's life connections also. How all of a sudden one got onto a better path because one did something very nice. And vice versa. What about song? Formulating the question. Not to go with it. There is a good feeling afterwards uh, that one has been able to have it. The feeling in the fourth jhana, I would not describe as good feeling. I would describe actually as still and solid, which here is mentioned as neutral. So it has it. The opposite of is the opposite of neutral is pleasure and pain and no, none of those are there it's not pleasure and it's not pain uh, second jhana certainly uh, first jhana is pleasure second jhana is joy third jhana the contentment still has a joy in the background but when the fourth jhana give that away so you've got to go down I mean down that's just a word I mean don't take it literally please and uh, the mind the mind just has to give that up. Sometimes people find it difficult to go from three to four because they don't like to give the joy up and the, the contentment. Good feeling? Like what? What's a good feeling? Mm. Oh, sure. It is a feeling, absolutely. There's no doubt about it that there's a feeling. It's not a non-feeling. Non-feeling happens at Niroda in the ninth jhana for the non-return and the Arahant. It's not non-feeling, but it is not pleasure and it's not pain. I think what you are saying, I'm pretty sure, what you're trying to describe or describing is that it feels very good because it's so peaceful. Yes. <laughs> it feels very good because it's so peaceful, but at the time you have to keep your attention on the peaceful, not on this is so good. 
No, on the people. And definitely on that. You see, it's just like in the seventh is described here, excuse me, <coughs> that one keeps one's mind on the non and the signless, not on the signs. You see, you, you can always use your mind and go somewhere else with it, as we all know. I mean, the mind can go anywhere, right? So in the force, you keep it on the peacefulness. And every time the mind says, oh, it's nice, back to the peacefulness. Because it comes, it's like coming up for air. Actually, what it's coming up for is a bit of ego support, because it doesn't get much when it's in peace. Yeah. In fact, there's hardly any. So it comes up from it, and then it puts it down to peace again. Please put the attention on the breath for just a moment. Think of your heart as warm and loving, being contained within your body, filling you with warmth and love. And now, let the limits of the body go. Let them dissolve. And extend the heart. Let it grow gently, gradually. Always filled with warmth and love. And as it gently grows and expands, it touches everything surrounding it with love and warmth. People, nature, animals, Let it grow and grow, becoming larger and larger, more warmth, more love, giving out to all it touches.
makes a heart large enough to encompass this globe with its warmth and love. generating warmth and love to all that this globe of ours contains. All the people, all the plants, all the animals, beings we can see and we can't see. Now let the heart grow even more and encompass the atmosphere around our globe, the sky above it, the stars and the moon and the sun, the galaxies, the universe. Our heart is immeasurable, no limitations to its love potential. Now think of any single person that you want to love and extend the warmth of your heart to. Become one with that person. Now think of anyone who needs love. Feel that need. Become one with that person.
think of anyone whom you find difficult to love. Do not allow your heart to contract and shrink. Keep it wide open. Become one with that person and love him or her the same way as everyone else. Think of those people who are part of your environment, those you meet every day or very often. Become one with them. Let them have the whole of your heart. Now pick out people that you can think of, those you know or those you don't know, with whom you would like to have a heart connection, anyone, anywhere, as many as you like, make that heart connection. Now put your attention back on yourself. Notice the outlines of your body 
the limitation of it, but do not limit the heart. Let it stay as large as you could make it, filled with love and light, encompassing as many beings as possible, including yourself. May limitless love pervade the whole universe. 